Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the gray skies of pleasant gray. <laughs> we have Dan Shapir. Hi, coming to you from hot and sunny Tel Aviv. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. feel like long time no talk. It's been a while. I know. <laughs> I was happy to see you. <laughs> Steve Edwards. Yes, this is the funny guy, not the smart guy, coming from Portland, Oregon. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week we have a special guest, and that is Craig Buckler. Craig, do you want to say hello? Hello from a very wet UK. Nice. This episode is sponsored by Sentry. Sentry is the thing that I put into all of my apps. First, I figure out how to deploy them. I get them up on the web. Then I run Sentry on them. And the reason why is because I need to know what's going on in my app all the time. Yeah, I'm kind of a control freak. What can I say? The other reason is, is that sometimes I miss stuff or I run things in development, you know, it works on my machine. We've all been there, right? And then it gets up in the cloud or up on a server and stuff happens and stuff breaks, right? I didn't configure it right. I'm an idiot and I didn't put the AWS credential in. I didn't do that last week, right? That wasn't me. Anyway, I need that error reported back. Hey, Chuck, I can't connect to AWS. The other thing is, is that this is something that my users often won't give me information on. And that's, hey, it's too slow. It's not performing right. And I need to know it's slowing down because I don't want them going off to Twitter when they're supposed to be using my app. And so they need to tell me it's not fast enough. And Sentry does that, right? I put Sentry in. It gives me all the performance data. And I can go, hey, that takes three seconds to load. That's way too long. And I can go in and I can fix those issues. And then I'm not losing users to Twitter. So... If you have an app that's running slow, if you have an app that's having errors, or if you just have an app that you're getting started with and you want to make sure that it's running properly all the time, then go check it out. They support all major languages and frameworks. They recently added support for Next.js, which is cool. You can go sign up at sentry.io slash sign up. That's easy to remember, right? If you use the promo code JSJabber, you can get three free months on their base team plan. Now, you want to just remind everybody why you're world famous? Am I? I don't know. You're from the, <laughs> the UK. You must be. Is yes. Okay. So I'm a freelance full stack UK web developer. Uh, I write a fair few articles for SitePoint. You've possibly seen them there. And you found one of my articles from another site, ironically. But uh, yeah, that's probably what I'm best known for, writing about web stuff and primarily vanilla JavaScript performance progressive web apps, that kind of thing. Right. We got you for DevTools, of all things. Yes, yes DevTools. Something that right. we should all use more of, I think. So it's right. an article I wrote about a month or two ago about some 15 DevTool tips uh, that you or secrets you may not have been aware of. And before, just to be before clear... You Oh, Before go you go into that, I, I have to interrupt. And, you know, I'm the, the guy that interrupts. But <laughs> but uh, what I wanted to bring up is the importance of DevTools, uh, of web DevTools. I mean, you know, we kind of take them for granted. They're built in, essentially into each and every browser. I still remember the days when they weren't, where if you were using like Firefox, you had to install Firebug or stuff like that. And I think we underappreciate the importance that they've had on the evolution and success of the web. The fact that in every browser, you just have this built-in development environment that you can use to figure out why stuff isn't working the way that it's supposed to be working. It's an amazingly powerful capability. Totally agree, Dan. 
I'm with you. I was uh, there in the early days of the web when using IE, which was pretty much the only browser that worked at times, and you got an alert for every JavaScript error, and that was your debugging. And the one that sticks out in my mind was object, not an instance of an object at line zero. That was the error that you would get sometimes, depending on what you were doing. So now we've got development tools that actually are usable. Yep, absolutely. And I was just going to clarify, when you say dev tools, it is, it's the developer tools in the browser. Yes. I and mean, I think they yeah they evolved from Firebug. That was the first one that really took it to an extreme. But um, oh, yeah, yeah now, now they're all built into the browsers. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because Brave is built, it's kind of a reworked Chrome. Edge is now a reworked Chrome. Everything's Chrome. Chrome dev tools is now what we're doing now. Pretty much, but Firefox dev tools, don't overlook those. They're very good. They are would, pretty darn good. Yeah. Especially from a design point of view. I think if I think the Chrome dev tools have caught up recently, but if you're doing anything with Flexbox or Grid and CSS, the Firefox dev tools are fantastic. Yeah, that was where I first came aware of them. I was doing a West Boss class. I think he had a couple of free ones on Flexbox and Grid, and he used specifically used the Firefox. There's a dev version of the browser. It's got the blue icon, and you, you could really see some cool stuff with the grid and flexbox layouts for those. Yeah, it's my, the nightly, my mom it's calls the night- it Foxfire. <laughs> it's the nightly version. It's kind of like Chrome's Canary with the yellow icon. Yeah, I just use the sorry. I just use the standard edition that everyone else uses, and it's still good. Yeah. Now I, I have to say that some of these tools I already knew about. Like I, I think everybody kind of gets incognito mode. I almost said yeah. it funny, but I think that's a tool that we all kind of reach for when we need kind of a fresh run at whatever we're doing, right? But can you give us one, some tip or tool out of dev tools that maybe people don't know about or don't know as well? Oh, there's so many. This is the problem. But I would say the second one of on my list was uh, auto starting dev tools. So I think most of us, even if we're starting in incognito mode, we right-click the icon or we launch it. We then run our app. We then open dev tools and navigate to the pane we want. But we can do that all in one step by changing the by changing the shortcut, just adding the one of many hundreds of flags that you can put on the shortcut in Chrome, certainly. So minus incognito, starts in incognito mode. And you can also auto open dev tools for tabs, which automatically starts dev tools. And you can just place a URL at the end. So if you're always going to localhost 8000, you can just put that URL at the end of the shortcut and it'll open that all the time. I wanted to mention, by the way, that I also obviously use incognito mode a lot, but I actually, one thing that I did in Chrome that you can actually do in other browsers as well, is I actually created a profile specifically for debugging. And the advantage there is that sometimes I do want to maintain sessions. For example, if I want to debug the process of what happens when you're already logged in. Uh, Also, incognito does change certain aspects of the browser's behavior. So if I want to more closely match what users might experience, then like I said, sometimes I just use this uh, dedicated profile that I created just for uh, debugging purposes. Yeah, there's a flag you can point. I forget which one it is now, but you can just point it at a particular folder and it'll create all the bookmarks and all the caching and and everything there. So it's very easy. It's very portable. You can delete it if you need to. 
and you can create any number of profiles you like. But yeah, you're right. Incognito mode does have a few drawbacks. You can't, for example, install a desktop icon from it. Wait, Dan, so you you just create a profile, right? Just yeah, a normal, you, regular profile? Yeah, but that that's totally local. It's not associated, it's not synchronized with any other device. It's just, I, I just actually called it debugging. Just gave it a recognizable icon and I just open a, a new browser window with that profile whenever I want to debug and incognito is less appropriate for some reason. I wanted you to call it debug and shapiring. <laughs> By the way, one, one important thing about both incognito and an alternative profile is that you don't load the regular extensions, browser extensions that you usually have into the, the debugging session. People forget that all the Chrome extensions, for example, actually run inside the same browser context as your own web page or the, your own code. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of resources that might be loaded, JavaScript that might be executed. If you're profiling it, uh, for example, for performance, it, it can definitely get in the way. So that's another reason of using either in, incognito or a specialized profile. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think as well, extensions like ad blockers, they can sometimes block things you don't realize. So running without one of those is definitely useful. And it's closer to what, the majority of users are doing because very few people install extensions i would have thought we all do we all like to configure our browsers to the nth degree but i suspect that most people do not install extensions unless it's the amazon control bar or whatever i have so many extensions installed that i think my browser can read my mind at this point <laughs> but yeah one thing that i have found though is that sometimes i get weird behavior with some of the things that i'm doing or that other people are doing that I've actually, I've turned on incognito mode and then I've actually systematically, because you can turn you can turn the extensions on for incognito mode. And so I've systematically turned them on for incognito mode and then loaded incognito mode just to see if that's what's causing my issue. That that's always like fun. Yeah, that's, uh, that's going down the rabbit hole, isn't it? I think uh, what Dan, one of the things Dan's been doing, so there's a user data DIR to the directory we just point at any directory and you'll have no extensions you'll have everything's clean your cache isn't there and uh, so it's a completely different profile and certainly you can do that in chrome mm. so what's this command palette i don't know if i've actually used this yeah it appears i would say probably about a year ago in chrome maybe before but it's just like the command palette you see in VS Code and lots of other applications as well. It's uh, Control or Command Shift P, and then you get a list of pretty much everything that you can do in the browser and in DevTools. And uh, there's a few things in there you can't do else in any other way either, like take screenshots of certain elements and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, I mean, you can use it just to find files if you want to. But there's a list of all the all the commands that are there. Just start typing, and it'll give you the most relevant options. Oh, nice. So it's like an omni search for the developer tools or like the way the help menu works in Mac. That's right. Yeah. And it's familiar. It'll be familiar to you if you've used any of those applications. And as I say, things like VS Code have got them. And it's, it's, I can't remember where they first appeared, probably Mac, possibly was, was it in sublime text, but I don't use it very often. I must admit, but just now and again, you forget 
where a particular option is, especially because DevTools is getting so huge. There are so many options and so many features that just being able to use a command palette because you've got a vague recollection about some feature uh, can be really handy. I wish every app had these. And in Mac, most of them do. But for example, Twitter. I wish Twitter had one of these. Or Facebook. Ever go to, you know, find one of your privacy settings and it turns out it's under accessibility <laughs> instead of now. privacy? Yeah, I think, well, that's the next step, isn't it? Putting them into websites. So uh, every website will have its own command bar where you can get to whatever page or feature you like. What I really want is that instead of the sophisticated UIs, we just have a search box that kind of works like Google and you type in what you think your command might be and it'll find your command for you and you know do it for you. Do you think just the standard users would like that or is it just us? I don't know. People are uh, people like Google, I think. Uh, <laughs> it's an interface that works. It's to the test of time. So, But it's an interesting question. Uh, at the end of the day, I think about me. <laughs> yeah. But what, what was the alternative to Google? Because there was something... It was some sort of directory service and it had everything categorized and you could click in to see, like, I want to look at news sites and then it would show Yahoo? you news sites. Was that Yahoo? Yeah. It's certainly the it early days of Yahoo, definitely. Okay. I thought I thought there was something else, like a, maybe it came after Yahoo, but like a, a something like a web directory. But it was, it was like a competitor to Google at the time, if I remember correctly. Anyway, I, I think that having a direct way to get to things is awesome. But I also agree that it's nice to be able to explore through a tree structure, assuming that the tree structure actually follows its structure and your privacy settings aren't under accessibility. Absolutely. But I think it's this is just fairly safe to use. This, this command palette, it'll be familiar to you. You use it once or twice and then you know it's there. Yeah, like there's magic. There's so by, much on by this By the list. way, kind, kind of related to what you just mentioned, because you also said that you can, you know, you can also use it to find a particular file. You can do either on the Mac, either Command-O or Command-P to get a particular file. What I found that a lot of people don't know is that you can actually get to a line and column inside the file, but just having like a colon, line uh, number, colon, column, colon, the, the file name. Or if you're in the current file, then it's just uh, the numbers. And that's kind of useful because a lot of tools that find errors, let's say at runtime, report the line and column where they happen. So you can really easily get to the exact code, put in a breakpoint or something and try to figure out what happened. Oh, I didn't know that myself. That sounds great. So can it actually get to the right column, even if it's compressed code? Yeah, actually, 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 what I tend to do is I I use it with, like it says like line one column three thousand five hundred seventy four, and I get there. Then I mark a bit of the text and I prettify, and it keeps me on that line. So I can actually get to the prettified version of of the file and find the the pro the be able to understand the code as it were and, and figure out what maybe is causing the problem. This has really helped me a lot of times. Yeah, and I think prettifying is has come on in the last few years as well, because I don't know if you remember the early days, but yes, you could prettify a particular file, but it never kept it. But now you can set breakpoint, you can set breakpoints or do all sorts of other analysis on that file while it's prettified, which is really handy. Yeah, I totally agree. Especially given the sorry state, uh, what's it called? When when you're tr you're trying to use the original source code uh, source maps, 
the yeah. sorry state of source maps. Um, You've had problems, have you? Yeah, they <laughs> they never really. Yeah, they almost work, which is sometimes annoying. That then more annoying than just not working. If something doesn't work at all, then you just say heck with it and 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 do without. But they almost work. So. You, you kind of hope for the best and then they fail you in some annoying way. They don't recognize the variable or the breakpoint. You're trying to single step and you're jumping all over the place. It can really be annoying. Yeah, they're probably okay for smaller projects. But I think once you start getting past that critical mass of code, then they become a little bit problematic. Now, my understanding on that, I think we had someone previously on the show that said the reason that source maps suck is because there's not actually a defined standard that is followed by the tools universally. There's different flavors of source maps. And so when you mix and match your tools, they things break down. Is that what it is? Is that we don't have a standard for it? Or is it too complex of a problem? Or That's essentially what I also seem to recall. I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was somebody from Google, but we had a bunch of them over. So I don't remember who it was. My apologies. But I think that that was the reason that was given, that it was just uh, some sort of uh, initially created as some sort of a labor of love by a few people at, at uh, Mozilla. And then, you know, nobody followed through with it. And it is what it is, more or less. That was that's my recollection as well. Still, it's better than nothing. Oh, for sure. Hmm. What's the next item on the list? Where were we? So the next item is JavaScript. Yeah. And this is one that appears probably about two years ago. It's quite simplistic. So you can use a coverage panel in Chrome. And as you're navigating around your single page application, it will show the parts of the code that have and haven't been used in, in red if it hasn't been used. So it works for CSS and for JavaScript. Uh, and I know there are tools out there like Purge CSS and uh, obviously tree, sh tree shaking in JavaScript. But this is a quick and dirty tool that you can use just to find whether this function is actually called at any point and remove it manually. But I will warn you now, though, that it doesn't work with multi-page applications. So if you've got your WordPress site open and you're navigating around, it forgets between page views, which I'm surprised they haven't implemented yet, but I'm sure it's coming. Yeah, but in multi-page applications, I guess you can also just download for each page the, just the JavaScript that it needs because it's being reset anyway. Although it, it will get in the way of caching if you do it that way. You can never win. <laughs> no. Yeah. And let's see, what was the one that you listed be below that? Ah, locating DOM changing code. Yeah, I like that one. I, and surprisingly, I, I found that a lot of uh, people using DevTools are indeed not familiar with it. Yeah, and it's really difficult, actually. Uh, and this is, this is something that you often see something change in your DOM, and you don't know how or why it's been triggered. And yes, you could obviously hunt through your JavaScript to see if you can find some matching selectors. But actually, if you just right-click that element and do break on, you can choose whether you want to break on the subtree modifications or attribute modifications or a complete removal. And it'll break at that point when something happens. Uh, so it's it, there are times when it's just completely invaluable and there's just no other easy way of doing it. I, I totally agree. And if I might contribute a tip or two for the elements panel as well. So an easy one is that if you select an element in the elements panel and then go to the console panel, you can actually do $0 and see that selected element. 
which can be useful because you can then apply stuff directly to that to that element. For example, you can do the get bounding client rect or something like that to to get the uh, the shape instead of looking at the data in inside the elements panel or anything really that you want to do with it. Uh, it's a it's a nice shortcut to to get to a specific element. I'm also I you know you can also even search for stuff in the elements panel, mm. which is is something that. Again, I, I find that a lot of people are not totally aware of that you can do. So if you happen to know that you're looking for a particular URL or something like that, a URL fragment, you can actually use uh, you can use that to find stuff in the elements panel. Definitely. Uh, and it's got a, it's got a bit easier, I think, because the early versions, it wasn't like a control F or command F to find things. And now I think they've they've backtracked on that a little bit and um, and started using sensible shortcuts for it. Yeah, it you it mostly works. Uh, I have run into some issues with it when the URL when the HTML gets fairly complicated, but usually it works and it and, and it's it's uh, it, it's a nice way to get around a complex document if you've created one. Unfortunately, I think we all do. But uh, as well as dollar um, zero, you can also use dollar one and dollar two and dollar three, and I think all the way up to four or five, which is the previously selected elements that you happen to choose. Yeah, I remember that there was something like that. Thank you for reminding me. And one more thing about the elements panel is that you can also look at the computed properties. Rather than when you when you go to the elements panel, you've got the styles of the uh, showing the the styles associated with a particular with the selected element, but you know it's broken down according to the cascade. So you see you're going from the most specific one to the least specific one. But if you just want to see what are the properties that are actually applied to this particular element, just select computed, and then you get uh, an alphabetically sorted list of all the CSS properties, their values, and where these values came from. Yeah, and that's also in in Firefox. And this is um, as well as as well as that, in Firefox, there's a little event icon on each node that has a handler attached to it. So that's really useful when you can just click it and it allows you to jump to the right place in the source or open the debugger. Cool. I didn't remember that. Thank you. So going back to your list again, uh, I keep I keep jumping between tabs because I've got your list in one tab and then actually <laughs> open dev tools in another, trying to play around with the stuff. I think the next one you've got is actually in in the network tab. So so yeah, I, I practically live in the DevTools network tab. It's uh, you know I do a lot of of my work there. I think like you, I'm very much into web performance. For me, it's really part of my day job, and uh, very often I need to analyze uh, the performance of particular websites or web applications. And the the network tab is one of the first tools that I reach for. So the one what you what uh, what was your tip for it? Uh, this is the throttle network speed, which is also available in other places. But the network tab, I totally agree. It's one of those that I think when you first use DevTools, you're obviously going to use the console. You use the elements pane, but as you become more conscious of performance issues and problems and downloads, then that the network tab is is the way you spend a lot of your day. And uh, there's a throttling option, which you can set your browser to limit the bandwidth down to sort of slow 3G or even custom 
bandwidth. So you can tell what it's like when someone's in a an airport or on a hotel Wi-Fi. Yeah, I really pity people who you try to use the modern web on a, th- a slow 3G or equivalent network. It's it's terrible. Some sites just don't load. I will say two things about that. Uh, I totally agree with you. It's it's immensely useful to be able to throttle the network like that and see the impact on your website because like too many of us just test our, our websites, the websites that we're building or working on in at our office or on our own home, fast home network or you know fast iPhone, whatever. And we don't take into account that a lot of people don't have this privilege and we are just potentially losing these people as potential users. But uh, an interesting thing there is that if you do throttle the network, DevTools actually puts this yellow warning sign next to the network tab title. So this way you don't forget that you actually throttled your connection and you know you don't understand why it's loading so slowly. I, I don't think many developers will forget they've got a slow connection. It's, <laughs> it's, it's painful. And... Uh, you switch it off immediately. Once you've done your testing, you don't switch it on again. Uh, One thing that I have done as well is I've actually copied some of the configurations out of a web page test into the uh, and added them as custom configurations to De- to DevTools. So if I want to simulate 4G, which is not one of the options there, or or a cable network or something like that, I just you know, took the values that web page test uses for these types of throttling and put them there. What is this like? Not for the backwoods people, but just the people that aren't blessed with fiber. Exactly. Well, I think that's all of us at some stage. You know, we're we're not all permanently connected to a fast network. Well, probably during the pandemic we are, but but you know, you're out and about. I was I was out yesterday on a train. It was horrendous the the connection, and it wasn't really the it wasn't the general speed. It was just because it was very patchy. It would appear one second and then disappear the next. And I think being able to just get an impression of how your app loads in at times of spotty connection then that's a really useful thing to have and it's not perfect and i think it's as dan just said you know you can look at web page tests and actually get some real data from real devices around the world which is very useful but you know having those those facilities and dev tools definitely gives an impression of how your site works for the the wider population well I've just, i just I have think to say oh go ahead I was going to say, I just think it's funny because, I, I mean, there are some people that are connected to fiber all the time and develop on fiber, but the difference between, I don't know, 30 megabit internet and gigabit internet, I don't see how that is not negligible unless you've got one of those home pages where it auto plays a video, you know, <laughs> it's like once you get past a certain speed, any faster is not, you know, it's not faster. So it's, it. I, what was funny to me is just the idea that a 4G network speed would give you a different result than gigabit for the average type of thing that you would do with a web page because it's like the limit of fastness is if it's faster than you can blink, it's faster than you can blink. You can't, any faster doesn't matter. Yeah, the reality though is that with the TCP-based connections that many of us are still working, I mean, you know, HTTP 3 notwithstanding, very often it's about the latency much more than the bandwidth. So unless you're really bandwidth constrained, Usually what will impact you most is is the latency and also how spotty your connection might be. I mean, think about, you know, again, the good old days before the pandemic, when you, let's say, you were walking out of a show 
and you were trying to open an app to get or a web page to, to call a cab or a taxi, and everybody's doing it at the same time, and you really have terrible connection at that point in time, and you just can't open their app because yeah. it's so bad. I just oh, I think want to point out that there's a problem with this picture that you've got here, Craig. And that is, is that it says fast G, 3G and slow 3G. If my phone says 3G, I don't know why I'm trying. Well, there is that. I mean, I think these these settings that are in Chrome were going back a few years now. So, but you've got to also take into account that, yeah, we're quite fortunate in the Western world about how good our connections are. But you go to some emerging markets and mm -hmm. slow 3G is the maximum you're going to get. That's so true. so I, I think that as we, especially as we come out of the pandemic and as, as internet access becomes more widespread globally, there will be markets that you might want to target which don't have the fast fiber and even, even 4G. They've got a rudimentary net access, which uh, we were using maybe five or six years ago. Yeah, I think that's the other thing that's uh, key here too, is that which market you're targeting, right? So if I'm building an app, it's going to be used internally in the office and it's only going to be used there. I may not care about this, but if I'm building an app that's going to be used on people's phones out in the field and I don't know where, blah, 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 right? They might wind up on the 2G network that's out in the boonies because they're going to be servicing some oil jack somewhere and they've just never installed an antenna out there because nobody goes out there. Or they might be in the subway or being yeah, very right. rude inside of an elevator or something like that. And, you know, the, the connection might ju just might be intermittent because, you know, where they happen to be at that particular moment in time. Yep. But also, if you get your app working on 2G or 3G, you're going to be fairly confident that it's going to work on a fast fiber network as well. Yep. So I, I think if you if you strive for performance from the start, then only good can come of it. Yep. And... I don't know what it's like in the UK, but America is 50% suburban and maybe 30% rural out of mm. the 50% that's suburban. I think the UK, I mean, if you look at the coverage that like mobile networks and, and some of the top hosts and ISPs show, then it's something like 99% of the country is covered with good, good fiber and good mobile access and it's nonsense it's just clearly marketing spiel because there are pockets where there is very little access there are people who are still struggling on you know 100 megabit connections to their house and i live in a fairly rural area i can't get a mobile signal or not a reliable one so i can get outside but as soon as i'm in the in my office that's it it goes so uh, I think everyone's got different experiences. And yes, if you're in the center of a big city, you're, you're generally going to be fine. But not many people live in the center of big cities. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. 
If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. But remind me, AJ, weren't you the one who used to tell us that at a certain point in time, all your neighbors start watching Netflix and there goes your network uh, connection? That sounds quite possible. I was living in an apartment complex with shared internet two years ago, and I think we had that problem very, very badly then. Now we have individual lines to these condos and uh, townhomes. But yeah, it just depends. If you're in an HOA... HOAs that have uh, an internet agreement with the renters typically is really, really terrible because they're bringing in one internet connection so they can give you free internet. You can't purchase directly from Comcast or I don't even know if there's any other internet providers, (laughs) but you can't purchase directly and and it ends up that you, you do have problems with the network getting congested from people that live in your neighborhood in, in that block. And that's probably going to get, yeah, we're going to have a similar experience when we move to 5G as well, because 5G on the face of it is faster than your landline connection. Mm. But as soon as you get to an area where there's lots of people all using the same access hubs, then it will slow down. Uh, I well, do that's have true a of any speed, isn't it? I mean, that's true of anything. Start getting a whole bunch of people. You only got so much capacity. I, I guess so. I, I assume that most landlines they're connected to some sort of massive hub, but uh, I think with certainly with five G, as I understand it, it's very similar to Wi Fi in in that respect. So if there's a lot of people in one concentrated area, then uh, they're all using the same the same infrastructure. Yeah, and again, you might be fine most of the time, but then suddenly, just when you need it, for example, let's say you're traveling and all, of, and you really need to get into your insurance website, but again, because you're traveling, you have something that's really equivalent to 2G more or less. If you can't load your, the, the insurance company's website because they insisted on putting some huge image there that of uh, some smiling people that does you absolutely no good, you're not going to be a happy camper. But I, I do have a couple of additional tips associated with the network tab, and I'd, I'd be curious to see what you think of them. One thing that I really like to do in, in the network tab is enable two settings that are, as I recall, disabled by default. One of them is to group resources according to iframes. Uh, if you're using a web page that has multiple iframes on it, then it can, you can really get into a mess understanding what's being downloaded by what. So being able to group resources into iframes can be really useful. And the other one is that you can actually have it uh, color code resources, kind of the way that uh, web page test uh, does. So that instead of having the standard uh, uh, blue and green colors uh, for the bars, you actually have uh, colors according to the resource type. So it will be orange for JavaScript and this bluish thing for the HTML and purple for the CSS. Red for fonts, I think. Uh, you can tell how often I'm I'm in this tab, and and I find it really useful because it, in a quick view I can uh, really quickly tell which resources are being downloaded when and what their impact is on the way in which the the app is loaded, and it also actually let let me get rid of the of the type column because I have the type in the color. I don't need an explicit the name of the type. 
of the of the resource, the type of the resource. Have you tried? Any of you actually tried uh, playing with these settings? No. Where are they? Where's the color coding? That sounds really good. So you, and then the funny thing is that you actually don't won't find it in the in the settings for the network tab. You actually need to go into the DevTools setting. So it's that wheel at the top right. And you click that and then scroll down to the network part and you have color code resource types as one of the check things that you can check. Got it. Right. I've enabled that immediately. So that's going to be really useful because I tend to use the, the filters along the top. So you get all XHR, JS, CSS and use those quite a lot. But uh, I think being able to color code them as well, really handy. Yeah, that's a, that's a great tip. I've not seen that before. I'm I got a tip. blog post. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I got a tip that related to one you've already mentioned that I didn't see mentioned in your blog post that I found pretty useful recently. In next to the coverage panel about finding unused JavaScript, there's one called rendering. And so it allows you to, there's a whole bunch of different options. You can show your core web vitals, you can disable local fonts, you can emulate pages. Someone I was uh, working just this last week on a on an issue where I wanted to, we have a bunch of uh, reports that are generated like D3 or Chart.js and we wanted to make them printable for the users to be able to just print them out. So we decided to use, instead of exporting to something like, I don't remember what tool we were using, to a PDF, we just figured we'll use PrintView. And so uh, it works out really well. And one of the really cool tools that I found was on that rendering tab, there's an emulate CSS media type option and it has print and screen. So if you go to that and choose print, what it does is show you what your page looks like in print mode when you go to print it from the browser. And what makes it really useful is the fact that you can still use like the elements tab to see your, your uh, padding and margins and all the stuff you can normally see in a screen view, but it's for print view. So you can tweak your print view. Otherwise, you, pretty, you always have to go to your file print option and see what it's going to look like. Close it, make your changes, open it back up again, so on. But this gives you the option to see what it actually looks like in print view. And then if you look on that rendering uh, tab, there's a lot of other options too. Things you can emulate, like the prefers reduced motion media option, uh, prefers color scheme, some of those other things. But I found that uh, really useful when I was working on that print. Uh, yeah, if you're ever doing anything with print style sheets, it's it's absolutely the easiest way of doing it. And I think Firefox actually has an icon on the Elements panel that does the same thing, but it's a bit difficult to find. But uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's um, when you're doing print style sheets, the only the way we used to have to do it is you would change the active style sheet to the print style sheet in your code, and then debug it in the browser that way. It was the only practical option. But now with this, you can set a lot of the operating system settings. So, you know, as you say, print and also things like um, prefer prefers color scheme for light and dark mode and prefers to produce motion. You can do it all in the browser rather than having to set your OS settings and then suddenly realizing that none of your animations are working because you forgot to un- switch that off. I was going to ask about the filter network requests. So is this just a simple... It doesn't change the behavior at all. It just shows you the network requests that match but, yeah. the kinds of requests that you're looking for, right? That's yeah, that's correct. So if you wanted to find a file, you know, files that are larger than you know hundred mm-hmm. hundred k in size or whatever, you can put in larger than colon and then a size in bytes, or you can put a k on the end of it as kilobytes or an m 
capital M, for megabytes. And the one I think that's probably the most useful, especially if you're debugging performance, is uh, is trying to identify third-party resources. So ones that are loaded from another domain, things like Facebook widgets and uh, Google Analytics and that kind of thing. And you can enter minus domain colon and then your domain, and it will show you all those assets that come from elsewhere. And they're usually the most shocking from a performance perspective because you suddenly oh, yeah, realize... definitely. You suddenly realize that one little script that Facebook gave you has loaded a megabyte of tracking code. Hang it, Facebook. <laughs> no, it's 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 a real issue. I mean, what happens is often this is outside the control of the developers building the application. Somebody in marketing says, well, we're having this smart co- campaign with Facebook, so I'll put in the, the Facebook pixel. And and they do. And like and like uh, Craig said, it's it's pretty heavy. But, and, but, you know, okay, it's for a good cause. I mean, I, I need to measure the success of the, the campaign. But then the campaign a- ends and nobody ever removes it. And then they add, uh, they do a campaign, let's say, on, on some other platform and they add yet a, a different pixel. So, you know, at the end of the day, you, you suddenly find yourself that your website is, is loading some 10-odd pixels that nobody's using anymore. And that accounts for like, Sixty uh, percent of your application's overhead and load time—it's it's a real issue. And they don't look as though they would do that. That's the problem. It's usually just a link to a pixel or a script tag or something like that. And and from most developers' perspective, they'll look at that, and go, "Oh yeah, that's great. I'll put it into my code and forget about it." All of a sudden, you realize that you're downloading half the web just to show your page. <laughs> what what about npm? <laughs> Um, NPM all things. Shots fired. (laughs) Ouch. I thought that happened when Facebook got mentioned. No, that was only a couple megabytes. I see that you also have some uh, tips and suggestions for the the source panel about black boxing scripts. Yes. So, you know, we all use libraries and particular web components or whatever that we have no control over. Something like Google Analytics, for example, or, or a Facebook script or React or whatever. And I was going to say React. Yeah. Or React. Or React or also jQuery react. Or, or, I don't know, anything. Anything you're using that you have no direct control over or, or you can't really edit yourself. What you can do is ask the dev tools to ignore that source file. So if a an error is raised or an exception occurs or something like that, then it's it's not going to trigger any, any debug points. And it also means that if you're following code, if you're stepping through code in your debugger, it won't go into those scripts as well. Yeah, I found that especially useful in projects that use uh, Lodash, for example. Uh, people use uh, Lodash iteration functions, and you definitely don't want to single step into the Lodash code yeah, <laughs> it you'll get lost very easily. So by just black uh, blackboxing Lodash itself, you single step into the the iteration method, and you find yourself immediately within your function that is invoked for every item in the collection. Yeah, it's bad enough looking at your own code, isn't it? Rather than looking at other people's, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I have to say that the, the next one that you've got, which is log points, I, I have to, to be honest, they're they're nice, but but they haven't made such a big difference to me. And after you exp- after you describe them, I'll explain why. 
Okay, so yeah, a log point, and we we all use console.log, and I don't believe... No, we don't. I know. Uh, I don't believe you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I just don't believe anybody who says they don't. And I, don't I will know. use it temporarily, maybe just to see where I'm at, but I live with my breakpoints in my debugger and all the things you can do but with breakpoints. There's, so. there's certain things that, you know, you can you can output things with console logging that a breakpoint. You don't want to stop on every breakpoint necessarily. And I, I I know what people say that, yeah, you should be using your debugger, but console.log is very useful. And of course, there's all the other ones, console.info and warn and whatever. So log points are a way of doing console.log without doing console.log. And you click a line or open a script in the sources panel, right-click any line number and choose add log point, and you can enter an expression just like you would with console logging. And that line will then, or that piece of text or message will appear whenever that line's executed. And they, I I think most of the dev tools, they they persist that as well, certainly during the current session. So it's a way of of doing console logging without actually having to change your code. So but, so the reason that I mentioned that I like I like it, but I find I found it a bit underwhelming, let's say, when Google added this feature into Chrome, is that I was actually already doing this in a bit of a you know in a more verbose sort of a way. What I did usually did was just create a conditional breakpoint and put a console log in it as the as the condition expression and because console log returns undefined which is falsy it never breaks so i basically got the exact same effect that's a nice way of looking at it and I, and as as well i don't use it very often because although i do add console.log to my code now and again then i've built systems that rip it out so it's a nice thing to have i think if you've got something that yeah, especially if you're testing a live site where you're not actually working on the code on localhost or wherever, then it could be a nice feature for you to use. Another issue is, of course, that if you're using minified slash uglified files, it might not be able to identify the the variable name the variable name that you put in the expression, because yeah. you're saying the the variable current user, but it's actually underscore x and uh, <laughs> and yeah. Uh, and yeah yeah you do have to look at how the minified code has been changed so unfortunately it won't work in that respect but yeah i think i think log points i, I don't use them enough because i'm still very used to using console logging and uh and of course i use the debugger now and again as well but but it's one of those features that just for quick and dirty messaging without having to change a script can be really useful. I think we don't have a lot of times, so I'll just yeah. actually skip to number 12 because the other ones are kind of more related to stuff we already spoke about, and that's the rerun uh, Ajax request. Mm. So, yeah, if you uh, just right-click, I think, any any network request, you can turn it into another request of any other type. So there's fetch and there's node fetch and there's curl. PowerShell and all sorts of other requests, which you can then rerun. And it just copies the syntax, which is, I think, is very useful when you first start using an API and you're not sure what's going on. You can just rerun that, or you can even use your own API. If you've got some code that is running and you know it's working, then you can just copy as a fetch and, it, and paste it into your own code somewhere else. And for Windows users, all Windows users have curl on their computer. And if you get an error when you do the copy as curl, 
Just make sure it's curl.exe because Windows has two curls. It has PowerShell curl, which is a function stupidly named curl because it does what curl can do, but doesn't follow any of the same semantics. And then there's the actual binary BSD curl, the same that's on Mac. There's also a number of things that are on Windows. Tar, lots of the BSD utils are on Windows these days. FYI. If I had any hair, I would say, boy, that really makes my hair curl. <clears throat> and don't forget, there's also um, the Windows subsystem for Linux. So you've got another terminal that you can paste into as well. Oh, of course. And an, and another item that I think we also have to mention, because again, I'm, I'm shocked by the fact that so few... Uh, web developers are are familiar with it, and it's it can be amazingly powerful. Is that is enabling local over uh, file overrides? Oh, I know. I was just looking at that too. That's uh, that's awesome. So yeah, I think DevTools is becoming its own development environment. And if you were on a, a new system, you go to a, an office for the first time, you start a new job, and all you've got is a browser, then you can be productive immediately by some local file overrides. So this is really just replacing a script or a, a CSS file or an HTML file or whatever you need. And you can say, rather than downloading this from the network, point at this particular file or directory and it'll get it from there. And so you can make your edits and save it and have it have it refresh and it loads that file instead of from the network, which is astounding. Yeah, it's amazing. I think I had a I had to pick a while ago because I know Chris Coyer from Shop Talk and CodePen and CSS Tricks had a video, a CSS Tricks video screencast episode on this thing. I'll see if I can dig it up again, but it was, it was really neat to see it, how you can do it and actually do I it. actually used this uh, technique once uh, a couple of times when uh, doing workshops. So uh, instead of having people prepare some sort of development environment and install stuff from, let's say, from from GitHub or stuff like that, I just created some sample URLs and had them open uh, the the file and open the JavaScript file, then enable local overrides and start making their own changes in the initial file that I provided them with. And that way they could actually implement stuff without having, like they had this built-in, like you said, development environment right on their laptop, regardless of what any other software that they happen to have. Exactly. I think it's actually a really good way of learning now because, you know, back in the day, we always used to use ViewSource and try and make some changes and copy it locally. But this, you can change anything. I mean, most most sites are quite difficult to get into the code. But if you just want to add a JavaScript function or a bit of CSS, then this makes it very straightforward and you refresh and it's all there. All your changes are there. So this would yeah. be like the modern day bookmarklet without having to have an extension. You could just copy some code into the site. I guess so, but it's it's sort of more powerful than that. Oh well, yeah, of course, a, of course. You've got a, a development environment, which is it's not a full idea yet, but they're clearly heading down that direction. Yeah, it's got auto completion and and everything. So so yeah, you can just once you enable that, you can just select any of your the files that were downloaded from the network start editing them, save your changes, reload the site, and your changes are like suddenly integrated into that site. And it could be any website. It could be, I don't know, CNN.com or whatever. So you can effectively make changes in the way that CNN.com is loaded and see how your changes actually impact that site. Uh, it's it's quite astounding. The The only limitation really is that, again, if your 
source file is minified, or even more so if it's a result of bundling, let's say with NPM and with uh, Webpack, sorry, then then it can be it can get fairly tricky to to use this mechanism. Cool, very cool. Well, maybe someday we'll have Craig back and he can show us how to do all that stuff. Well, thank you very all much. Right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks and yeah, see where we uh, land with all that stuff. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. AJ, you want to start us with picks? Sure, I will. And the first thing that I need to pick is tip number 15, which is emulate mobile hardware, because this is pretty cool. Because it talks about you can emulate GPS location and tilt and all sorts of other stuff, which I think is that we can't leave that out of this show. So I'll pick that first of all. And then, Chuck, you picked this a while ago, which is why I got into it. So I'm now going through the Lightbringer series, starting with the Black Prism. And good books. I'm finding it to be very enjoyable. I just finished Rhythm of War. And so I need, you know, another series to keep me busy over the next year or two while Brandon Sanderson gets his act together and publishes <laughs> the other 10 books that are going to take him the next 20 years to, to get all through. So I'll, I'll pick Black Prism. And again, this is a, a fantasy series. And I think that this, the author really is comparable to Brandon Sanderson. The world building, the depth uh, isn't, isn't quite as full as mm -hmm. what Brandon does, but I think it's it's pretty darn good. And the magic system does have a system. It's not just random like Harry Potter. Harry Potter would be my definition of absolutely worst possible magic system, meaning that there is no magic system, just whatever's needed for the plot is available at the time and then forgotten about in the next chapter. And then the next thing I will pick, I'll keep my list short today, is because we mentioned WSL and I know tons of people have trouble getting it installed and working correctly. So on webinstall.dev slash WSL, there's a copy and paste little curl script for Windows. If you run it and you follow the instructions to reboot your computer, which is something that people commonly miss when they, if you if you end up on the, the forums and the GitHub issues, that's one of the most common problems is that people don't realize you have to reboot your computer, I think, two times during the process in order for WSL to completely install because for whatever reason, it can't install everything and then reboot. It has to reboot and then continue installing and then reboot again. But yeah, so this script will will install all of the right things without any GUI interactions and then prompt you to reboot your computer and rerun the script to finish it. So if you need that, there it is. And those are my picks for today. All right, Dan, what are your picks? My first pick is being not in mute. Uh, <laughs> so I actually have one pick that I prepared in advance and another one that's the, a direct result of AJ's pick. Because uh, the fact that you said that you liked a particular book because it has a coherent magic system, a fantasy book that has a coherent uh, magic system, reminded me of a series of fantasy books that I read a long time ago, but that I recall that I really enjoyed and I think you might enjoy as well. I, the first one is called Master of the Five Magics. It was written by uh, Lyndon Hardy way back in 1980. But he, he created a, a really great 
magic system that uh, has very coherent and consistent rules. And, uh, and the books, the, the plot really flows around that magic system and is driven by it. So I really think you'll enjoy that uh, series of books a lot. They're not really long. They're just the, these three books and that's it. That's, that's before the day of, uh, of, you know, people writing those infinite series of, uh, of books that never seem to end. But uh, try it out. I think you'll enjoy it. So that would be my first pick. My second pick is something quite amazing that recently came out. This is a technical pick, and I'm, I'm, trying, I'm still trying to wrap my, my mind around it. Stack Blitz introduced recently something called Web Containers. Uh, they introduced it on, on May 20th. And it's basically, it enables you to run Node, VS Code, NPM, all that good stuff inside your browser. And it yeah, launches yeah. instantly. It's it's mind blowing. Uh, so you basically you click a link, and you get a new browser tab with VS Code running inside of it with uh, the entire development environment, Node, npm. You can build a server running inside your web browser, and you can single step through your code. It's insane. Like I said, I'm I'm still trying to to wrap my head around this stuff, trying to figure out what you know what it can do, what what are its limitations and capabilities. But yeah, it's it's amazing that the that browsers can can actually run something like this. Awesome. And, and those would be my picks. Have you heard of UTM? It's it's so basically it's VirtualBox for iOS, and now it works on the M1 Max. And it allows you to run, for example, Windows XP on your phone. <laughs> Why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you? Windows XP was the best operating system ever invented. Because you hate your phone. Steve, what are your picks? First, I was going to address something Dan was saying. I have yet to figure out how you wrap a round hard object around something like your head, but that's just me. Going for the, you know, the weekly dad jokes here. So my for Christmas this last year, you know, I had asked my wife what she wanted. She said, you know what? I would like nothing better than a diamond necklace. And so I got her nothing. But changing tax here real quick. What do you call a vampire? You're, you're on... lucky that I'm that I'm on mute, so you couldn't hear me groan. <laughs> That's okay. That's better than nothing. I was um, gonna say you would like nothing better than to hear you groan. Yes. <laughs> and you were <laughs> muted. Yes, that, that enhances the environment. You know, two questions about vampires that have been bugging me. Well, actually, one, why do you call a vampire? What do you call a vampire that's on sale? Discount Dracula. But then the other question about vampires that's always bugged me is if it's true that vampires cannot see themselves in the mirror, why is their hair always so neatly parted? I mean, how do you see that? But This is a good question. Yes, it is a uh, it's a very good question and I have yet to hear a good answer on it. I'll have to see if I can do some research. Uh, I think they use an app for that. <laughs> they use their the camera on their selfie camera on their phone because that still works. Maybe that's there it. You go. That's my uh, picks for the day. Awesome, Amy. What are your picks? I'm gonna keep on my DevOps picks because you know why not? I think JavaScript people like to hear this stuff too. So mine's gonna be. I saw this on Hacker News. I'm always looking for like things that I can kind of do every day and not just like sit down with a large chunk of time. And it's uh, AWS flashcards. So I'll give the link in the show notes. Hi, I'm also going to pick, uh, not a developer pick, but I have become addicted to 
uh, these Normatec. I don't know if anybody's tried them before. Um, they're like compression therapy for your legs. And I usually go to a place and do it and a treatment's like $25. But it's really good if you're like an athlete and run a lot, spin a lot, just lift really heavy. Like the recovery time to be able to do another workout hard is like literally like 24 hours. So that'll be it for me. I'll drop a link to those in the show notes too. They're pretty expensive. So you might just want to like find a place nearby that has them. So would they be equivalent to using something like a foam roller? or uh, <laughs> It's like a foam roller on steroids, like a pair a pair of them is like a thousand dollars. Oh my good. Yeah. I'm looking at them. They look pretty fancy. But they're, they're absolutely amazing. Like I sit in those for 20 minutes and I'm ready to go. So mm. cool. I might have to check that out. Highly recommend them. So I have a couple of picks. Uh, the first one that I'm going to throw out is, so one of my three-year goals is to run an Ironman. And I was chatting with some guys that I did not realize were prepping for triathlons. Now, I knew one of the guys had actually run an Ironman and he had actually roped in these other two guys. <laughs> they, they all live in the neighborhood. We all go to church together. And so uh, I'm going to pick just having workout buddies or workout group. And so uh, I signed up for the same swim team that they're on and we're going to be running together and stuff. And uh, it just makes all that stuff just so much easier because you have this accountability group that you can go and uh, participate with. And so I'm going to pick just having a workout buddy. Yeah, I can vouch for that, Chuck, just because, you know, part of the reason we've talked about this in my initial interview, but I do, you know, CrossFit is a workout. And part of it is because of the exercise and I like the coaching and all that kind of stuff. But part of it is just the group aspect of it. And there are other people that at, at my particular gym who have killer home gym setups, but they just can't get motivated when they're right. doing it by themselves. And I can speak for myself, you know, when I'm out, if we're yeah, have a workout that has some running into it or just about anything, looking over at somebody next to you or trying to keep up with somebody, just, you, you tend to work a little harder <laughs> when somebody's there with you, pushing you. So yeah, that the group aspect of, of working like that is, is huge. Yep, absolutely. Uh, the other pick I have, we're getting into summer and I'm kind of involved to a certain level in the, the leadership of my congregation. I'm the president of the Sunday school. And uh, so we're planning one of the the parties for the summer and we're doing a, a morning breakfast. And uh, so I have two picks related to that. Uh, one is, is they asked me to bring uh, one of the activities for people to participate in around while we're eating, you know, things that people can do while we're chatting and playing and stuff like that. And of course, they're, somebody's bringing cornhole and somebody's bringing like lawn darts or something. And of course, I'm I'm the brilliant guy that comes up with I'm going to bring water balloon launchers, and I love water balloon launchers. And oh, so we're gonna we're we're gonna draw um, chalk targets on the church parking lot, and I'm gonna put some poles in the back of my truck, so that you don't have to have people hold hold up the ends, right? And I'm just gonna hook the water balloon launcher onto the ends of the poles, and then you can just pull down the middle and launch and see if you can hit the target. And I'm totally cool if like teenagers or kids want to go stand down on the targets and see if they can get hit with water balloons. So yeah, my first pick is water balloon launchers. And then the other pick I have is my dad did scouts for years and years and years. And when he passed away, um, we were cleaning out my mom's garage and she had, uh, or he had a griddle and a camp stove that he just, he'd had for years and just anyway, I inherited that. And that, um, that's always nice to have for some of these kinds of activities. And since we're doing a breakfast, you know, I kind of volunteered it. The, the church had stuff from 
scouting and stuff like that that we'll probably use. But that's always nice for some of these get-togethers. And so I'm going to pick that, just a camp stove and a, a griddle. And I'll, I'll find something that's like it on Amazon and link it over so if people want to go buy something like that. But yeah, when I was, when I was in college, we, fun. when I was in college, we built, I built, we called it a funnelator, but basically a, a water balloon slingshot out of surgical tubing and some cloth. Mm-hmm. And we could launch balloons from like a dorm clear over the football field and track across a fence, you know, on a jogging path. And so you could launch them and laid land by people and they couldn't tell where the heck it was coming from because you were so far away. Yeah. When I was a teenager, we would do it and we we did it off of the back of somebody's Jeep. And we we lived in this cul-de-sac. And so we would launch it from the end of the cul-de-sac all the way down into the middle of the cul-de-sac. Because it, it was like two or three houses in and then it was a cul-de-sac. So it wasn't just the circle was right on the road. And so it was kind of a safe way to do it. But yeah, we would take turns launching it off the back of the Jeep. onto We'd hook it onto the back of the Jeep and launch it from the road down into the cul-de-sac. And that was fun. We also had a disabled kid in our scout troop. And so they always put us on the lowest down campsite. And what that meant was that we had a clear shot onto the lake with our water balloon launchers. And it took them a few days to figure out at scout camp that it was our troop that was launching the water balloons onto the lake. (laughs) Always fun stuff. Craig, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got a couple. So the first one is how to fab icon in 2021 by i think it's pronounced andre sitnik so this if you've ever had to create icons for mobile web apps then Mm -hmm. apple tell you you need 357 different combinations of icons one i can identify with that and there are lots and lots uh so what andre's done is condense that down into just six and you just need to put a couple in meta tags, a couple in your manifest, maybe a couple others at various places, and that will do you, and they all downgrade gracefully, and that's all you need. So that's going to be really useful and save a lot of people a lot of time. And uh, the other one is, uh, for anyone who's ever had problems with a printer, there's a video by Stevie Martin, which is hilarious. So it's worth a watch. And he goes on for a couple of minutes. We have a printer at home that I'm literally now that I don't have any kids in school anymore. We're literally just using as a scanner. And, and we're not printing anything really anymore. No, but they still demand ink, don't they? Even with scanning. I had one the other day. It wouldn't. Yeah. And, and even that people tell me that they're just using their phones. Yeah. But uh, yeah, printers are a world of pain. But there's, there's some other videos as well she's done, Stevie. I'm not sure she's in the web industry, but she seems to uh, like mocking us. I was going to say the fab icons is going to come in handy. And when you said anybody who's had a problem with the printer, and I was going to say, so humans? Absolutely. Anyway, thanks for coming, Craig. This has been great. And yeah, I can imagine folks yeah, getting a, a whole bunch of use out of this. We'll link to the blog post as well because there's some stuff that we didn't cover. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming. Thanks for having me on. How can we reach you? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. How do details, you find you on the details. internet? Details. Well, I'm on uh, Twitter, as everyone else is, at Craig Buckler. He's, my name's pretty unique, so it's uh, not many people have it. And if you go to craigbuckler.com, there's a lot of links there as well. But you also find me on SitePoint. Awesome. All right. We'll put those links in the show notes and we will make sure that people can or in the chat we'll make sure people can find them and yeah thanks again thank you adios all right max out everybody bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.